fourth chapter of Glitter City is called Class. Irwin, who was who Mike was supposed to give his Ash System operator job to, though Mike didn't know yet. Mike didn't know it because Mike and crew had rotated to days. The plant was a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week operation. In order to keep some semblance of peace, a schedule had been set for the five crews that manned the plant. The schedule was broken up in 16-week sections that matched the schedules of the local university and community college. Every 16 weeks, the crews would go to different shifts, days to afternoons, midnights to days, afternoons to a split shift of afternoons and midnights, and the split shift would move to days. They needed two shifts on days because when one shift was in training classes, the other shift operated the plant. Mike had not seen Irwin because he was now in a windowless cinder block with 60 people watching an overhead projector while some white boy stood nervously at the front of the room preparing to give the first inaugural lecture on the treatment plant what it is and what it does. They sat at long cafeteria-style tables and flipped aimlessly through large loose-leaf folders with diagrams of the treatment plant processes. Some had their heads down. Others had their feet propped up on the table. Mike, who had still not seen Irwin or even dreamed of seeing Irwin, pointed derisively at the open loose-leaf. Check this out, man. He began to read, the purpose of the vacuum filtration unit is to produce a sludge product called cake. Excuse me, is we still in the shit plant, man? I mean, goddamn, don't it sound like we in some sort of bakery? Hey, poet, you reading this? Poet was not. He was off on a Greek isle with Calypso, his traditional place of residence, whenever he was placed in a classroom setting. Glitter City was bad enough, but having class here was adding insult to injury. He drowsed now near the old days of the Detroit cast corridor when Ithaca had meaning. Poet was, at one time, a poet, or as he would say, a finder. A finder being an artist, but not the type who used their imaginations to weave a vision into whole cloth. As far as poet was concerned, there was plenty enough of that out there. He said the world was awash with pieces of vision, ill-fitting and juxtaposed. A finder wandered amongst this hodgepodge, searching for the moment when these disparate elements reached coherence. The finder's job would then be to use his understanding and grasp that moment and preserve it. To carry out this lofty goal, he wandered Woodward Avenue from Detroit, from downtown to, Maine, to Wayne State University and hung on through small jobs, unemployment, welfare, and the largesse of family and friends. Every Sunday, he dutifully reported his findings at the Elko Bar, a rummy hangout on the outskirts of the university to the cast quarter dregs who were killing off the taste and taint of Saturday night by drinking 30 cent beers. At first, the black guys with rings and big hats thought it was cool to bust their racks and order food while he spoke. He never turned around, but kept speaking with intensity as he rolled the words at them. Bit by bit, he eroded the studied indifference until the reports began to leak through. The truth is like water on the floor, he said. Keep throwing enough water on the floor, and eventually it will soak through. Keep throwing it, and first you'll get a stain, then some ugly brown stuff, but keep throwing it, and eventually it'll come through clean. Of course, this assumes you started clean in the first place. Apparently, his baptism of words were, was pretty clean. Didn't no one admit it, but the regulars started to make sure they were in their seats or at the pool table by 11.30 when poets stepped up. Some students started coming to nurse their hangovers on cheap beer and strong words. It became the church of the lost, literary or both. Poet said his life was always a half inch from catching on and mostly through his own doing. He had a nose for the potential of things and when the sweet smell of success began to waft his way, he was sure to feel an itch that took him another way. Which meant <clears throat> one day he stopped coming and vanished from the bar and the cast quarter, but not memories. 
Rumor was that he had died or flipped out and was stored safely away in Lafayette, Detroit, in Lafayette, Detroit's mental hospital. But for Poet, it was always Ithaca. It had been that way since he was 10. He had always been an outlier, bookish and withdrawn. He either stayed in the house with his books or puttered around outside playing imaginary games with a horribly gawky creature named Linda, whom he would lose when she was sent off to school. This state of affairs was interrupted because, in Detroit, all fifth graders took achievement tests. His results came in and trumpeted to the school administration that whatever planet he was on, it did a whole lot for his reading comprehension. He was damn near fell into fifth grade, but he could read on the tenth grade level. Black people are pretty infuriated by racism, but what really pisses them off is a good brain sitting out the American race war. He therefore was placed into the capable hands of the school librarian, the dreaded Mrs. Red. Tall, lean, and wearing a severe bun, she peered at him over her glasses as if someone had left something unpleasant on her desk. She could only have been thinking, if this is what the race is depending on, we may as well toss it in. Nevertheless, she endeavored to convert his mind into something remotely useful. She took him to a part of the school library where most of the books creaked when you opened them and said he could read anything he wanted in this area, but nothing else outside of it. With this, she took his most favorite book, Horton Hears a Who, from his hand and thrust a book of Greek mythology into it. Miss Red was prim, stern, and proper, so it was fitting that she had placed a book brimming with sex and violence into the hands of a ten-year-old. It worked. His daydreams now were all things Greek. There is nothing foreign about Greek ideas to any perceptive person running around the black urban landscape. Capricious gods, the Furies, Ate, Hubris, are rolled out on the avenues like a panorama every day. Hell, they even had choruses just like in the churches. This wasn't John Wayne at the Rio Bravo. That was a reach even when he invested all the science class and work in the plot. The Greeks brought it into focus for him and gave his everyday world a clarity which was immediate in his surroundings. His brain was still thoroughly disengaged from school, but from this point on, he was locked into the street and the lives playing out the drama before him. Despite all efforts to dissuade him from letting his potential go down the tubes, he persisted until he was rammed again and forced off course by the young rascals and the Martians. The rascals sang Blue-Eyed Soul and had a record called Expressway to Your Heart. For both blacks and whites, this was pretty good music, and in Detroit, they developed a following. The place they chose to perform their music when they finally reached Detroit was the Grandy Ballroom. The Grandy Bone was a dance hall that had seen its better days, and before it had finally fell silent was the neighborhood rolling rink. It roared back to life suddenly one summer with, of all things, white kids. These were not the white kids of TV. Their hair was not neat, their clothes were ragged, and they liked to paint little pictures on themselves and wore beads. They may have looked white, but for the black people in our neighborhood, they were nearer to Martians. They were a predator's dream. Martians that viewed every wolf as a Martian and actually sought out the wolves to do Martian stuff with. The wolves, however, did not do Martian stuff no matter how much persuasion the Martians put into the process. These sorts of affairs tended to end with the basic wolf behavior of the punch to the head, the knife to the throat, with the other hand rifling through their pockets. To the other astonishment of the wolves, the Martians seemed to want to understand their behavior even after they had did their damn wolf best to make life miserable for the Martians. Still, there were drawbacks for the brothers that participated in these acts. A steady stream of easy victims had made them dependent upon their prey. It made no sense to bother anybody black for their paltry money. They could put in hours sliding up and down Grand River looking for a good chance, then have it all explode in their face as the person struggled with them over a dollar. One white kid was worth a hundred black folks. It was a shame how racism snuck into those things. 
the biggest drawback proved to be education. For your average river rat, a term given to those who ply their trade up and down Grand River, being a Martian demands work. These kids talked about Marx and Engels. Well, they knew Groucho, but who the hell was this Engels guy? Existentialism, Dadaism, isn't up the butt. The Martians knew them all and wanted to know what the black point of view was. This is the point where the knife had to be brought out and the money obtained. Obviously, this wasn't good enough. These people had money and could be talked out of it. They had drugs and gladly shared them. The white women had sex and they shared that too. They weren't getting into this pot of gold with a knife. The best the knife was going to do was just scrape a little gold off the side. It was time to hit the books. They figured that this couldn't be too hard after all. Their lives were cliff notes for the text. It was galling. Some little white boy had given them a book and for the life of them they couldn't make heads or tails of it and it was supposed to be about their lives. Not to mention the fact that they were under severe time pressure due to nature's axiom the best parasites adapt seamlessly to their hosts. The problem being their hosts were chock full of all this black stuff and they couldn't understand a bit of it. There were those who could and one of those happened to be down the street languishing in a stuffy back room with all types of books writing letters to his long lost friend Linda. He emerged from time to time to hustle change and buy books Concomitant with this habit was also a ravenous need to talk with anyone about what he was reading. He was an easy mark. Press a button on him and he was just like a broken jukebox that played all day, little realizing the value of what he was dispensing. Then again, for poet, the value was in the talk, the meeting of any mind that would let fresh air into his life and relieve that sense of isolation which he had come to believe was as common to him as the floors and the walls. They gave him books and then sought him out to talk with him about them. They even gave him money to buy books. Finally, they gave him something that his family, who loved and respected his reading, could not fathom. It was appreciation, a sense of the usefulness of his learning and the dim knowledge that a wider world was out there for him that would do the same. Dim got really bright when the young rascals got to town with their blue-eyed soul. They were not advertised in the neighborhood, but on the door a postal was put up announcing a concert. Unbeknownst to the people of the neighborhood, this same poster was also hanging on walls down in the cast corridor and at Wayne State. Young black women and men dressed in their best Saturday evening dress stood with scruffy white kids as the line snaked down Grand River. Everybody 16 and over willing to lie about being 18 in the neighborhood was there. Poet, due to his educational role to the parasites, was quickly snuck in a side door and hustled upstairs to the dance floor. The game was afoot. Under the power of cheap wine and plentiful weed, barriers had started to slide. Whites and blacks staggered towards each other in words. Wine was offered. Conversations were started. The smell of marijuana drifted sweetly everywhere. This is the shit that made bird fly, man. You put some of this up your nose and you the king. You're kidding. Flo Ballard lives five blocks from here? No, a white man wrote that song. Now, how in the hell is this little piece of paper going to get me high? The great confusion had begun. Under the flashing lights, black guys with big hats and continental iridescent sharkskin suits had put on beads and sat on the floor to watch the really far out scenes playing before them. While next to them, a white kid grooved to a heroin-induced dream. The dam had not burst and never would, but some rascals had stolen in and ran a small bypass around racism. Everybody, for the most part, stayed on their respective sides, but you could never quite be sure who was infected with what and by whom anymore. Poets strolled around slipping in and out of conversations. These people not only knew what he was talking about, they even wanted to talk about it. 
He leaned against a wall in the ballroom. A band had begun to play, and from where he leaned, it sounded like a multiple car wreck, where everyone had their radios turned on loud. He hated the music, but so what? He was comfortable and in a place that seemed made for him. Fuck the rascals, he thought as he slid down the wall. This is cool. Suddenly above him, a young white girl stood offering a flyer. He took it and read it so intensely that she waited. It was for a war rally at Wayne State. He talked about the Vietnam War, which he wasn't particularly interested in since most black people at that time were pretty hawkish. He would have slid back to his near coma had not the writer stuck in the words hubris and later Ate. He looked at her and mouthed the words hubris, Ate. The girl colored and squatted down near him. I'm talking Greek drama and I, I'm taking Greek drama and I, I guess I got kinda carried away. He kept his eyes to hers. Are you Cassandra? No, I'm Marianne. Then colored again when she realized what his reference was about. She put down her flyers and sat cross-legged in front of this glassy-eyed black guy and asked him, did he go to Wayne? I live up the street, tied to the mast, and wail for release at the siren's call. At this, the wine and contact high from marijuana smoke inhalation took over and he slowly listed to the slot to the side and his head rested comfortably on the dirty carpet. You're pretty stone, she said as she knelt down and stretched out so that she could examine his face. His eyes rolled back to hers and he reached out and touched her cheek. Calypso? She smiled, took his hands and giggled. More likely Io. Oh, he said to no one in particular, then faded into oblivion. Marianne stood up, got a pen, wrote her name and address down on a flyer and put it in his shirt pocket, then withdrew it and wrote, Ithaca is near, replaced it in his shirt, stroked his head and resumed passing out her flyers. He awoke in his bed, fully dressed with the usual tongue of fur. He sat up, felt his pocket and pulled out the flyer. There in precise handwriting was Ithaca is near with a name and address. He could barely remember her but he did not hesitate and put his clothes on and set sail on the bus for the cast corridor looking for Ithaca. Poet! Ugh! Mike kept at him. Look at this as he held the book up to him. Poet patted the goddess's hand and opened his eyes. Mike, is there some note on my head? Does it say mess with the nigger while he trying to sleep? Mike grinned at Poet. He never knew what Poet was going to say. Nobody knew what Poet was going to say, but it was always worthwhile to get him to do it. Mike kept pointing to the loose leaf, saying, You gotta read this, man. It doesn't even sound like they're talking about the same place. Moses, who was sitting next to Poet and actually reading it, looked up at Mike. Mike I see this as a great chance for you. His voice now assumed a professorial tone. This document will be the instrument to lift the veil of ignorance from you. If you study this very hard and get good grades, you, my boy, could go from being a shiftless lazy nigger to being just a shiftless nigger. For Moses, the professorial tone was only a half a joke. He was a smart man. He knew it, and everyone else at the plant knew it. On his days off, Moses sat at his drafting table, making notes and pounding out his manuscript on an old portable Olivetti. He used and had he had a fold-out couch in his front room, so the bedroom was used exclusively exclusively for his writing. He had strung string across the room. Attached to the string were various pieces of paper. Each line represented one string of ideas and he would walk among his thoughts, mixing and matching until new ideas arose and another line could be added to his writing room. On his off days, he left the phone next to his bed so that with the first arrival of consciousness, he could knock the receiver from its cradle, then blearily place it in the refrigerator. He would then step into his writing room and commence for eight hours with only short breaks for food and the bathroom. At the end of his shift, he would arrange his thoughts and mark down where he was and where he intended to go in his writings. Then he would dress and wander into the streets of downtown Detroit.
what there was of it, that is. Detroit, unlike most major cities, never really had a downtown. It had large buildings and major department stores like Hudson's, but all activity came to an abrupt end at 5.30. By 6, it was said that a cannon shot down Woodward would never hit a soul or be heard. The Detroit tradition was to hop on a bus and go straight back home and leave the downtown deserted, except for the few hearty souls like Moses who adored this ghost town. Moses, even in this meager environment, had plenty to adore. His apartment had a fireplace, huge bay windows with a window seat, and looked out onto a courtyard. He was doubly blessed because his place sat directly across from the music hall, the high cultural center of Detroit. He could go to concerts simply by walking across the street and getting standing room only tickets. The music hall was his cultural sampler. Ballet, modern dance, opera, string quartets were all there for him if he wished to simply cross the street and partake. When that was done, he could stroll a few blocks in three directions and eat his fill of Greek and Italian cooking. The fourth direction was north towards Verna Highway, and that was not a place for food. It was where he kept his car parked among the various houses that sold sex. He strode there on occasion to visit his car and watch the action unfold on the weekends. The working women knew him and had ceased to offer him goods, though they would be they would bump cigarettes from him, which he kept just for such occasions. Moses, when not with prostitutes, had another life. He was the operator of the upper-level filters and the ten borderline psychotics masquerading as vacuum filters. Each filter was a world unto itself. They needed the right amount of polymer mixing with the correct amount of sludge with the drum turning at just the right speed with the correct agitation. The filters were capable of producing 20 tons of cake an hour apiece. On a good day, they would produce half this much. On a very good day, they would produce 15 tons of cake. Most days, 7 tons would do. It had been determined through the time-tested experience of tens of operators that the filter god and his ten insane minions would slumber peacefully at this rate and few saw any need to risk its wrath. Nursing the temperamental is not about getting work done, but about keeping the peace. Rule number two was evoked here. Raising the tonnage rate would mean turning the drums quicker. More cake would be on the belt and there was a better chance of bearing an incinerator. More cake meant potentially more slippage since the belt would pile higher and bits of cake would slip under the guards that ran alongside the belt and get on the underside of the belt and cause it to slip on its rollers. No one would give an operator even a smile. even a smile for producing more cake. In fact, if the operator were mad enough to go beyond the prescribed rating, then the others who hadn't would be watching. The higher-ups were up there supposedly because they could run a plant. How would it look if some wet-behind-the-ears SOB was doing better than they ever did? They would therefore watch and wait. Glitter City was too eccentric a place for something not to screw up. It would catch up to everyone, and when it did, they would fall to the mercy of others, and these others had no intention of showing mercy. They had, however, plenty of mercy to give, since the rules of Glitter City were unique in their consistency and uniformity. The basic sentence for all crimes was death. Detroit death, that is, the loss of a good-paying job. The rules for infractions, great and small, all ended with the addendum that this would be grounds for dismissal, negligence, tardiness, insubordination, not for following prescribed procedures, all would land Moses's butt on the corner. Mercy, however, was everywhere. All actions necessarily cause an equal and appropriate and opposite reaction in the classical mechanical universe. Glitter City was on the southwestern tip of Detroit, just a little past the sign you are now leaving the classical mechanical universe. Newton got applied here, but his rules were a subset. Relativity held sway. Every rule, 
no matter how straightforward, could be interpreted so as to soften or heighten its effect depending on the person. Christ under relativity could not have failed to break the rules, so all had to depend upon the mercy of those above to survive. All that was asked of the workers was that they recognized they were there only through the forbearance of their betters and that they served at their whim. In response, Glitter City citizens took up not arms but persistent rebellion. It was not enough to get them tossed into the street, but just enough to let those who had the power of mercy know that they could and would fight back. The sum of this was a low-grade mutiny that turned on as endlessly as the drums that Moses tended 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Moses was not joining the cycle. You only have your life he would say to poet, if you let this place make you not care about the time you're putting in here, then you are not caring about your life. This is real simple. These eight hours I spend here are eight hours of my life that I will never get back. Life is habit, and if you get into the habit of not using your life, you soon don't have one. Moses' solution was to go beyond their stipulations and to take control. He wasn't going to be part of the daily grind. He was going to be the grind. If he had to run the upper level filters, then he was going to run them exquisitely. No more this of this seven or eight tons an hour bullshit for him. He was going to put out 15 to 20 tons per filter an hour. His eight hours would be work, and it would be work for excellence. This was easier said than done. If the filters were turned up, there would be more cake on the belt and it would start to slip, which would cause it to slip more and eventually not move at all, while the filters dropped ton after ton of sludge cake on the now buried belt. The belt set upon V-shaped rollers that created a trough for the sludge cake to ride in. The rollers were called trough hylers. Many were encrusted in old sludge cake and wouldn't move. The only solution was to clean off the old cake and wash down the hylers to keep them clear. Moses devised a water blaster. It combined the weak stream of water that flowed to the upper level filters with a high pressure air source. With his new toy, he washed down the filter room each day. After this, he strolled the deck, working with each filter, inching up their speed, building their output, running up and down the stairs, making adjustments. By the end of his shift, he would have learned new set points for the machinery so that at the beginning of his next shift, he would be able to resume where he had left off. He was the only one doing this. The other shifts preferred to leave well enough alone and avoid exposure to the middle of the Glitter City Road. Poet had taken to calling him Penelope. Cause all you do is work hard all shift, then you undo it before the next shift comes on. Which means the next time you come in, you gotta start from scratch. See, Penelope did this to ward off the suitors. As long as that tapestry wasn't complete, she didn't have to choose a husband. I ain't looking for a husband there. Here, poet. Yeah, you is, and when he come, there's going to be one hell of a big mess, because you never ever stop before it gets out of hand. Penelope should have just settled after ten years and took the best she could. Ten years is a pretty damn long time, but no. She set her sights on some wild-ass goal, and the suitors started piling up all over the place. The old man shows up, and the place fills up with blood, all cause she got some wild-ass notion about fidelity. Is this the warning from Cassandra, said Moses? Yeah, you're right, Moses. This is the message from one screwed-up bitch to another. While I'm at it, you want some fashion tips? Moses took neither, and the drums kept rolling towards the mythical land of twenty tons an hour. Moses was just the upper level filter operator. There was also the lower level filters and the belt press filters churning a few stories below. They all sent cake to the belt, but there was no way in hell that the incinerators could take that much sludge cake. To this end, a giant hopper had been constructed where the cake of the upper level filters could be sent. Their trucks loaded it up and carried it off to landfills. Moses was effectively unhooked from the incinerators. Poet had been a little right. Moses had attracted a suitor. 
one who was deeply in love with his movements as he traversed the deck, coaxing more cake from his behemoth filters. Bernard stared wistfully at Moses from the stairway that came from the complex to control room and watched the drums roll towards the belt, filling them with cake. There he saw a shiny new car, the kid's education, and a condo in Florida falling neatly on a black belt that took the cake to the hopper. He was a black man with a truck. This happenstance put him in the way of fortune due to Mayor Coleman Young, who saw to it that some of, his, some of this bonanza of sludge trickled down to the few black people with trucks in the city. No big trucking concern could hope to win one of the lucrative sludge hauling contracts unless they had some minority participation. They therefore went out and found or created black trucking firms who would sign with them and thus allow them to get in on the black gold rush. Bernard had been found hauling debris and despair for his future on the east side and had promptly signed on the dotted line. Now he stood like a breathless maiden waiting for the magical moment. His nerves tightened as he watched Moses turn, then look at him, smile as he raised his hand and made a turning motion, which indicated the filters were ready to roll. Bernard's heart began to flow with joy as he turned and raced past people. He hurled himself at the nearest phone and began dialing frantically. He's here, he would yell, and he gave the sign. With this, every friend or family member who had anything that would haul sludge would race to the plant to load up. It was the gold rush, and it took place only when Moses gave the sign. He gave the sign a lot now. The filters rolled, and the cake fell to the belt with resounding thuds. He had reached 20 tons an hour per filter, and he was looking to go for 25. But mm, Gupta had never heard of him. Gupta was an engineer and did not know any operations people. They were dirty smelled and tended to use poor English, which made him uncomfortable. He had only visited the upper-level filters three times to make sure that the blueprints were accurate, that the building of the hopper was following specs, and to see the housing of the screw feeder which connected the upper-level filters to the hopper. He carefully examined the paperwork generated by the upper-level filters crew on tonnage and compiled the data and knew quite clearly what the upper-level could theoretically produce. The hopper was designed to be 10% above this maximum. The sludge was diverted from the belt into a screw feeder that took it outside of the building and dropped it down a chute into the top of the hopper. The trucks would drive under the hopper and then the driver would load his truck. If the hopper became too full, an alarm would go off and shut down the belt. It was all so simple. Moses had never heard of Gupta and had never seen his plans. All he knew is that he had carte blanche to push through more cake than even God could conceive of. Gupta was not God or even close. God would have known that if you make a large container with material flowing in the top and material flowing on the bottom, you need a way to keep the material from backing up and going the other way when the door on the bottom is closed. God knew having invented all these basic laws, that if this weren't done, then the material would push backwards and cause the container to overflow great volumes of crap into a small wooden shack with a metal floor hanging five stories off the ground, and that some poor bastard with a shovel would have to go into this unheated room and shovel for hours to clear it. God only knows why Gupta didn't put a pressure relief valve in the hopper or even a warning bell so that the drums could be stopped while the blockage was cleared. And only God knows why he put Moses in the upper level filters knowing Gupta and knowing that Moses would shovel to kingdom come rather than slow down the drums. Mike, having found someone to play with, took up the role. You mean I won't be using no shovel no more? I won't have ash all up in the crack of my ass. That I have a future? No, Moses continued while he held an imaginary pipe. You shouldn't get your hopes up too high. My boy, your kind can only expect so much. 
So, no, you won't have no future, and that ash will still be in the crack of your ass, but you're going to feel a whole lot better about it after you finish reading this. And, oh, by the way, the text will be much more meaningful to you if you hold the book right side up. Do you hear that, poet? Moses said, this is going to make me feel better. There must be some coke in these pages. Shit, I tell you what, Mike, if you find a coupon in there for Jack Daniels, then wake me up. Poet closed his eyes and apologized to Calypso for the interruption. Franklin, as the assistant supervisor, had to attend the class with the crew. He had sat amongst the general noise and joking, hoping they'd eventually settle down. Let him blow off a little gas, he thought. It was only after he saw the stricken face of Paul, the new instructor, that he figured he had better get matters under control. All right, all right, he said as he stood up with his arms raised. Time to quiet down. You're not here to run your mouths. You're supposed to be trying to learn something. I don't want any disturbances. You want to mess around, wait till break or after class. His voice rose to the emphatic point. No sleeping. He then scanned the room, slowly making contact with the usual suspects, turned and sat down. Flipping idly through the pages of the loose leaf, he thought, Who wrote this shit? Paul had great reason to be nervous because he worked for FUL Inc., the company who had won the contract to pull together all the information about the plant and present it to its workers in a coherent fashion. Fulbright, Ulster, and Lowe Incorporated was known by its employees as Find 'em, Use 'em, and Lose 'em, or Fuck You Louie for short. His first problem was that he didn't know much about wastewater. His second problem was that even if he did, he was standing in front of a large, dirty contingent of black men, all of whom looked like they had just come from their usual job down at Wayne State, where they regularly beat up white boys like him and took their money. Paul was just another lost architecture student who had found that no one in particular needed his grandiose ideas on housing and could not find a job. His was the old Wayne State University story of pamphlet abuse. The entire world hears the name Detroit and the first thing they see is a car or they think of the giant companies that inhabit it, General Motors, Ford, or Chrysler. The exception to this rule are Detroiters. They aren't ignorant to the city's past, but they know it not as the mythic assembly line with cars churning out to forever, but as a string of moments and sights. When people think of Detroit as cars, they are naming the force. Detroiters know the trees. This is why pamphlet abuse is so effective on young Detroiters, whom anyone in the world would assume knew better. Wayne State, named after British General Mad Anthony Wayne, is a full-service urban university. The status means that it can produce a well-rounded student conversant in all the arts and sciences so that that person can work in banking, which is connected to the auto industry, or public administration, which is in some way connected to the auto industry, etc., etc., etc. The problem is that people who work in academia are blissfully unaware of the auto, and they all want to turn out people that represent their particular specialty. So they harry the administration into putting out traps called pamphlets to catch the young, ignorant minds of impressionable Detroiters. These pamphlets show the nice office, the smiling people, looking at some papers and tell of the endless possibilities. Once in, the student will be given time to study, be allowed to take their abilities to their ultimate end. They will have the camaraderie of others who have also read the pamphlets and who will share dreams, wine, and adventures of the heart with them. Then they will all graduate and find, oops, no gigs. They will then learn about the real world. This is the world of relatives who work jobs that would make a honey dipper puke, giving constant advice and looking down on them when they have to take a job at the local Mickey D's. Paul avoided Mickey D's only through the good grace of Uncle Saul, a Purple Gang alumni who now resided in Florida and got to sit cottage for some dead Jewish ex-hoodlum at least once a month. So, how's Paul even start? Having got that out of the way, and not wanting to waste the opportunity, he would then launch into the litany, which invariably started with his father, 
the infamous Josh Woods Weizenbaum, labor organizer, firebrand, atheist, and a defender of the common man. You know, Paul, I love your father, but he was crazy, just like you. I, I could tell him nothing out there in the crowds, making speeches, just crazy. I tell you, I tell you, and you, you just like him. That's the reason I love you. You got that thing, you know, not like that daughter of mine. Hey. At this point, he would launch into the litany of his life, then diverge back to the 1920s and the old purple gang, then to the present and Scottish. Paul, you remember Mac? Paul said yes, though he never remembered any of his uncle's acquaintances. Else, Uncle Saul would do a 20-minute history at the end of which he would still be no more familiar with Uncle Saul's friend. Well, Mac's got this cousin up there named Fulbright. Go figure. And he's got some sort of company, and I talked to Mac, and he talked to Fulbright about a job for you. The guy says for you to come in, and he'll give you a look. Okay, no promises, Paul, but he'll give you a look. The job was a lock. It turned out that Uncle Saul's friend, Mac, was an even greater pain in the ass than Uncle Saul and also had an ungrateful daughter in California, so he, too, was spinning up the inheritance through AT&T. Fulbright had managed to get a little wiggle room on Mac so that he wouldn't have to take a total dribbling idiot who couldn't tie his shoes and was relieved to find Paul could tie his shoes and was almost bright. Paul was sent to the traditional place of young architects, Tex, the blueprint room, and promptly forgotten until the Detroit wastewater job had been won. The scramble for available bodies was so huge that he was sucked up and deposited with clipboard and white hat at the treatment plant. Here, Paul earned the attention of FUL Inc. He found the dirty books. These weren't glossy with names like Tits or D Cup, though he had found those too. They were notebooks handed down through the years from operator to operator on the various problems and the resolutions to those problems that came up in day-to-day -day operations. They were the holy grail of Glitter City, standard operating procedures that actually were time-tested and worked. The importance of this was because nothing in the plant worked as advertised, much to the chagrin of FUL Inc. The dirty little secret of industry is that no matter how hard you plan or are diligent about installation, there will be a 20-foot pipe that needs to be 20 feet 2 inches or a wire with 7 leads that must connect to a box with space for only 4. These gaps and misalignments were overcome to varying degrees by the skilled trades. Somehow that 2-inch gap of pipe gets covered and those 7 leads manage to terminate in a space made for 4. For all their greatness, skilled trades lack the one thing that would make them gods, historical connection. They each figure out what the other had been doing when they made their technology leap that fixed the first problem. Then they made adjustments on this to fix a new problem. Through time, any piece of equipment goes through modifications, some which are noted, some which are not. As the years go by, a piece of machinery may bear little resemblance to its original form of function. Thus, even with the best intention, a will becomes a cube that will not float. By the time FUL Inc. had contracted for this job, the equipment had long ago mutated from its original specifications. The manuals of operation, when they could be found, were therefore useless. There was nothing to do but to send people out into the plant to dig the information out. For the most part, all they unearthed was the three Ds, disrespect, disregard, and disingenuousness. A few months of this left them sitting in there. FUL Inc. trailers, knowing that fuck em, use em, and lose em was about to go into lose em and fuck em mode in a big way. It was while FUL Inc. was readying the first human sacrifices that Paul found the dirty book. Actually, due to the heat of the summer, Paul had finagled his way out to primary under the premise of doing a recheck of the data. Since primary was mostly green, open space with cool pipe tunnels, he settled into conversation with Walter on the one subject they both loved, music. It was during a debate about whether or not the coal train howling wolf tracks existed that Paul noticed the book. It looked like a logbook, but it had no date or any identifying marks. He picked it up. 
while Walter discoursed on harmonics and idly leaped through, through it, harmonics not being a subject he was well versed on or particularly interested in. Scrawled in various handwritings were diagrams of pumps, pipes, and tanks. He flipped through further and found a description of a problem and its solution. He held it up to Marvin and asked him what this was. Marvin, with a glance, said, it's a, it's a dirty book. Paul looked at the book again and admitted it was pretty dirty, and it seemed pretty old as well, but what was it about? Marvin sighed, took the book from Paul and told him that that dirtiness didn't have nothing to do with it being a dirty book. We started calling them that cause they was around for so long and was used by so many people that they kind of got a little nasty. I, I, I don't know if you noticed that this ain't the cleanest place. Anything that done happened on this job and what we did about it is in these, these here books. Books? Paul asked. Books? You mean there's more of them? Sure, they're all over the place. Don't nobody want to redo the will, you know, if you find out something about this stuff. How, how it works, you just write it down in one of these here books. Next operator reason, you done passed on what you know. Uh, that operator does the same thing and it just keeps on going and going. Uh, we all do that because it saves time and trouble. Paul came up from the pipe tunnel like a breaching dolphin. F.U.L. Inc. would have to find another head to stick on the pikes in front of the office. He did not go to the trailer, but back to his cubicle in their downtown office where he could have some privacy and immediately set to work transcribing the document and comparing it to what they already had. It was like a Rosetta Stone that allowed him to see the transformations and the reasons for the transformations over the years. It was then he had a revelation. Many of the operators who ran the plant knew what they were doing. It all appeared crazy and patchwork because those who thought they knew better didn't actually know the lay of the land. It was like some anthropologist studying the language and customs of a primitive tribe who had found, once he had returned to the quiet of academia and showed some pictures around, that the quaint symbols they were using happened to be diagrams for finding quantum numbers. It was by chance that Fulbright happened to come into the office that weekend and saw Paul working away. He stopped by his cubicle and Paul began explaining hurriedly all that he had come to understand. Fulbright listened intently and asked to see some of the work he had been doing and the dirty book. Paul, seeing Fulbright's enthusiasm, became an overflowing trough of ideas and words filled with the new possibilities that they could, that they could hope to create in Glitter City. Fulbright held up his hand and told Paul that he wanted him to compose these ideas as carefully as he could and then meet him in his office in an hour. An hour later, he enclosed his opus titled Plan for the Detroit Wastewater Treatment Plant in a yellow binder. He strolled to his destiny in the office of Mr. Fulbright of Fulbright, Ulster, and Lowell. He passed through two sets of doors till he found himself in front of a pair of huge oaken doors with a name plate Fulbright upon it. He composed himself, straightened his clothes, and gave a hard rap on the door. Fulbright asked him to come in. He found Fulbright poring over the dirty book and talking on the phone. Fulbright gestured to him to sit down. He sat in the plush leather chair and laid his document on Fulbright's desk and waited, all the while taking in the splendor of the office. Fulbright put the phone on his receiver and reached for the document. He thumbed through it and began to ask questions of Paul, which he patiently answered. He then got up and walked to the window and stared off towards Windsor. You've done excellent work, Weizenbaum. I must say that I am surprised by your depth and understanding of the problems involved in this matter. You've really impressed me, so much so that I've invited a few colleagues here to meet you. There was a knock on the door. Still gazing at Windsor, Fulbright said, Come in. Into the room came several burly men. Fulbright kept looking at Windsor. Mr. Weizenbaum, I want you to meet my associates. Paul stood up and turned around. Fulbright continued looking at Windsor, then called out, Just show him the instruments, okay? I don't want to have to explain this to Mac. Paul, 
standing in class, looked down at his prepared text, prepared text and thought, here it goes, then stared out at his audience and introduced himself. He said he was nervous, and since this was the first time, things might not go too smoothly, and he was asked that they bear with him. In this, he was addressing himself as much as the audience. He knew that when he was in a situation that promoted his self-doubt, that he would schism and become mentally ambidextrous. He could talk out loud and internally at the same time. Due to the consent decree placed on this plant by Judge Fikens, we have been hired to undertake your training and wastewater treatment. I know that many of you have worked here for years and probably slept a good deal of that time, he thought. The remarkable thing about any treatment plant is that everything is connected. Your actions, no matter how unconnected they might seem, affects the outcome of what happens here. This first course is to acquaint you with the wastewater treatment and the processes that make it up in general. Because Lord knows this place has got nothing to do with the real thing. Well, we will first start with a general overview of wastewater treatment. If you will turn to your handouts on page 2, you will note the schematic. It shows you the usual process design of the standard treatment plant. This first schematic concentrates on what is called the physical part of treatment. The physical side involves the getting out of particles in the wastewater. The largest particles are caught on the bar racks. These are screens that sit across the channel that water is flowing through. Any piece in the water larger than one half inch will be caught here. You commonly find wood and rags here. Nailhead, who happened to work in wrapping and grip, blurted, And don't forget about all them damn cotexes and them hairless rats! Franklin turned and looked at Nailhead. If you have something to say, raise your hand, okay? We then scanned the rest of the room and for the usual specs for the usual suspects, then turned back to face Paul. It was happening. A bead of sweat had formed in his armpit and was gathering momentum for a rush to his waistband. Paul looked down at his text for a moment and took a slow, deep breath and continued. This is what we like to call the flotum or sinkum phase. The water is slowed down and as it slows, particles fall out at various rates. This is why you have grit systems in front of the primary clarifiers so that these heavier particles composed of mostly sand, grit and eggshells will drop out. On the, on the schematic you see the process here, here and here. Now. You, the clown in the back, whose head is bobbing around like one of those dogs in the back of the cars, is here. This is called Dreamland. The guy with the big smirk over there is here. This is my shit list. I am to be found right here. This is Purgatory. And right across the street, located for your convenience, is Hell. Once the heavy particles have been captured, the water continues on to primary clarification. Here the flow is slowed even further due to the large width of the rectangular clarifiers. Virtually all the particles that will settle fall to the bottom and are pulled by scrapers along the bottom to a hopper and are pumped out as sludge. At the top of the tank, oils and greases which float to the top are skimmed off to another hopper where they are pumped or allowed to flow to a tank for disposal. Here you call those the scum houses. Are there any questions so far? he asked, then waited as the room full of black and mostly disinterested people stared back at him. They waited together for nearly two hours, though the clock facing him said that only a minute had passed. In that time, he had the chance to see whom he was actually talking to, to see each individual face, to speculate about their lives, to build up a case of flop sweat that now began hurling itself down in earnest. What was a bit of seepage now had turned into a stampede of wild beads of sweat surging out of and into every crack on the surface of his body. He had one more hour to fill, and all that he had was discussion underlined on his notes. Moments began to accumulate. The next section, where the hell was it? He glanced at Franklin, who gave him a shrug to indicate he was on his own. The notes were lost. 
Paul shyly smiled, looked at the gathering, and said, Guess we'll break for 15 minutes. With that, Section 2 shrugged and unfurled itself before him. He thought of calling them back, but the cold dampness on his skin suggested that he needed a break more than they did. A fresh shirt and some baby powder judiciously sprinkled would not hurt his situation. Ten minutes had passed. Franklin looked at the clock. He knew getting his crew back into the room would be like herding house cats, so he started gathering his charges early in the hopes that he could get most of them seated back up in the sealed back up in the room in 20 minutes. A half hour later, he was finally in his seat, glaring back at all assembled. 15 minutes is 15 minutes, people. The next break, I expect you to have yourself back in your seat when the time is up. Understand? He turned back in his seat and gave the refreshed Paul a nod. Paul nodded back appreciatively and began in the first section, we talked of primary treatment, screening and grit removal, sludge and scum removal. In section two, in your handbook, we'll look at where these side streams are processed. Paul felt his confidence returning, a new shirt and a little baby powder, plus some time to review his earlier performance, had lessened his tension considerably. This was the first time anyone had done this, and all in all, he had not done too bad. With a little patience and some visual aids, he might be able to dig a little response out of these people yet. He put an easel up behind him and placed a poster board with a diagram on it. This was good, he thought. He had spent the better part of the night carefully drawing out the two side streams. Bright yellow showed the scum rock, while the bright green clearly indicated the path and processes for the sludge. He turned to face the class to begin something however was wrong franklin winced put his head on the desk as if this was all he could take the woman in the back painting her nails stopped and mid stroke her mouth agape another shotgun two tables ahead of them were struck and stuck to another man's hat who was likewise staring awestruck poet and moses froze with their styrofoam cups to their mouths which they peered over like frightened children paul turned back to look at the easel to see if there was something there he had missed but could find nothing when he turned back again a very large black man was standing in the middle of the classroom shaking licking his lips and rolling his eyes there were two known certifiable crazies at the plant. Harold Jones was one, and standing in the middle of the room was the other, Orlando. The disposition has begun, shouted Orlando. You know of the secret. You have revealed yourself to me. No lies now. The green and yellow been shown and speaks of death and shit. I am calling you, calling you out now. Speaking your name, making your mind, you absorb now. Now, what you got to say? Paul had nothing to say. Nothing. I knew it. Nothing. He began to turn, orating to his audience and around. See, see, when you catch them, they know you. Know. And it's always the same. They is silence. I have absorbed him now. Franklin had by now mastered his panic. Plus, he knew that Orlando had chosen oration mode rather than leaping across the tables and throttling the white boy. Harris, he said quickly, ah, why don't we go down to the office for a minute? Harris stared at him and bellowed, It is mastered, Franklin. I am superior. Franklin went to the door. I need to know more, Orlando, but but we can't talk here. He paused and looked around the room and said, Spies! Harris looked around the room. He noticed some green and some gold being worn together. Thank God. But, but it wasn't worn together, thank God. But it was out there. And there was a lot of them looking. He backed towards Franklin saying, It's done! And it can't be changed. At the door, 
he looked at Paul and said, The truth will wheel out. Then rushed with Franklin to the office to tell him all the secrets. Moses and Poet came out from behind their coffee cups and Bootsy replaced the top on her fingernail polish. Somebody said, Who stuck this gum on my hat? Then the dam broke and everyone began to chatter about Orlando's latest episode. Paul stood there and wished he had worn brown pants. <laughs>